0: And um, the chocolates, they're dark. There's dark chocolate, there's milk chocolate, and there's caramel milk chocolate. So dig around, find what you want, and take it. Well, do you have any questions before we start today? Let's see, who might have a question? (laughs) Diane, what is your question? Thank you. You're very kind. I love you, too. Thank you. And then our question was on the Yes? What did the author take place, or why did the author take place to tell us three times that Jews did not take plunder, and why did they not take Right. Why did the author tell us three times that the Jews did not take plunder, even though the law said allowed them to take plunder? Um, and then what was the second part of that? Why would they not? And I will touch on that just real briefly at the end. If I don't do a good enough job on it, come grab me after class. But I don't want to talk about it outside of the context that we're going to talk about it. So. Uh, yes, yeah, Susan. We had a question on um, number 26 where it talks about Damon's son. We want to know what happens to That's a really good question, isn't it? Yeah, she probably got what she deserved too. Um... <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what happened to Haman's wife. Uh, maybe, maybe she, maybe she, yeah. She probably died of a broken heart with her wonderful husband and her ten fabulous sons dead, but I don't know. Jill, did you have a question? Right. It's kind of convoluted, isn't it? Right. Right. And we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit, but when, when Esther goes to the king the second time, or third or fourth or halfway time she's got to the king at this point, um, and asks for a second day, she's asking for a second day on the 14th of Adar, just for Susa. And so that fighting only took place within the citadel of Susa. And so the author is, basically the author is just trying to tell us because of that, because there were two days of fighting, they didn't celebrate till the 15th and everybody else was celebrating on the 14th and that's why rural Jews celebrate Pur- Purim, which we're going to talk about today, on the 14th and, and, you know, those in Susa celebrate on the 15th. He's just trying to just explain why they, it's celebrated on different days in different places. And, and I don't think it is now, actually. Uh, but... I think it's celebrated for two days, though, be that as it may. Uh, I think that that actually is a really good, really good evidence that it's a true story. Why even explain that? Why even bring up the second day? Why even? Because he's trying to explain to his readers who would have understood. Well, but why do they celebrate it then and we celebrate it now? So uh, good, good evidence of a true story. And probably written not all that long after the events. Okay, any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for your presence here with us today and and for this opportunity for us to look at your your word. Father, we know that you know the end from the beginning. Father, we know that you are sovereign and you are in control of all things. Father, I pray that you would um, give us a glimpse into your truth and your heart uh, as we look at this portion of your redemptive history today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, at the end of last week's reading, uh, at the end of chapter 7, Haman is dead, and the king's anger, because Haman is dead, oops, didn't mean to do that, has subsided. And so at the end of chapter 7, it says, so they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai, then the king's fury subsided. So the king's happy. The king thinks it's solved. Um, And it's interesting as we get into chapter 8, it's almost going to seem like the king thinks, you know, everything's good, everything's done. Um, I dated a guy in college who liked to speak in French occasionally because it was so romantic. Uh, But he was not. Because one of the things he loved to say was, uh, there's just the slightest chance that he and his wife listen to this online. But anyway, uh, I hope not. Um, he used to say to me, Je vous aime, je vous adore, que voulez-vous plais encore? Which he loved to tell me means, I like you, I love you, what more do you want? And, and you get to this part of in chapter uh, 8 uh, that it almost seems like that's what uh, the king is saying. I've killed Haman, what more What more can I do? What more do you want from me? It's done. Um, which gives us an, some insight into the king's concerns that, that his anger subsided with Haman's death, not with the uh, changing of the law or the counteracting of the law. Because he's not angry that Haman wanted to commit genocide. He's not angry that Haman wanted to kill the queen's people. It's his pride that has made him angry. He's he's angry because Haman has dishonored the king. Haman Haman has um, dishonored him in front of his people, in front of the court, in front of the queen by manipulating Xerxes to sign a law that made him look bad. Now, he didn't bother to get all the facts, but it made, that's why he's angry. His pride has been injured. He has, as Asian cultures sometimes say, he has lost face with his people, and that's why he's angry. And, and Haman's edu- ex- execution to solve that, so he's good. You know, it's, it's taken care of as far as he's concerned. It's ironic that it, is, it was Haman's pride that drove him to attempt to kill the Jews in the first place. I think Haman uh, would be the, the poster child of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride do, truly does come before a fall. So Esther now is... Why does this thing take time to warm up? I don't understand. Why do you not hear... This? It's not moving for me. I'm pressing the right one. Oh, there we go. Okay. Did you do that? Yeah, you did that. (laughs) That wasn't me. Uh, So Esther's going to go before the king again, but first we're going to learn about some more reversals of fortune in the story of Esther in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. That same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the state of Haman... The enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So we have these wonderful reversals of fortune for both Esther and for Mordecai. Esther is given Haman's estate. Uh, In Persian law, if someone was executed for treason, the king had the right to give all their belongings and their estate whatever they had to whomever he wished. And so I assume because he thought Esther was the person who was wronged by the law, he gave it to Esther. But Esther turns around, and there's a reversal for Mordecai too, because Esther turns around and says, I'm going to make you overseer of all of Haman's vast estate. And so he's had this reversal of fortune, but even more than that, the king takes off his signet ring and gives him Haman's job. Makes him number two in the entire empire. So in this span of a very short period of time, uh, Haman has gone from being one of Persia's most wanted to being the second most powerful man in the empire. Tremendous, stunning reversal for him. But for, for Esther and for Mordecai, it's not over yet. And so she's going to go before the king again. Esther again "'Pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. "'She begged him to put an end to the evil plan "'of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. "'Then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, "'and she arose and stood before him. "'If it pleases the king,' she said, "'and if he regards me with favor, "'and if he thinks it the right thing to do, "'and if he is pleased with me,' "'Let an order be written over ruling dispatches "'that Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite devised "'and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. "'For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? "'How can I bear to see the destruction of my family?' Now, it says that that she, she pleaded with the king again. That's actually a word in Hebrew that is often used for people falling before God, pleading with God, crying out to God.' Um, and here it is used in reference to how she's pleading with the king. And it's a word that connotes intensity and an insistent entreaty. She's very emotional. Obviously, there are a number of things about this that show us how emotional she is, but she's also very clever. Because her four part entreaty to the king, before she even tells him what she wants, is, is very clever. She says, if it pleases the king, and he's already extended his scepter, which means it probably will please him. And and if he regards me with favor, and he does. And if he is pleased with me, and he is. And if he thinks it the right thing to do, which he can easily be manipulated in order to think that it is, he's proven that to be true. Then let a counteracting law be written to undo what Haman has done. So notice she doesn't appeal to his sense of fairness or right and wrong. She doesn't say, for example, if the king thinks genocide is a bad thing to do or if he thinks it's wrong or unjust, he has no such scruples. In fact, she appeals to his self-interest and his love, some might say lust, for her rather than to any sort of uh, scruples he may have. Like I said, she's clever. Uh, but the kicker here is, is at the end where she says, how can I bear to watch my people and my family die? You know what she's saying here? Don't tell me you don't know what she's doing here, because you've done it, right? If you really love me, Xerxes, poo, <laughs> you'll write a counteracting edict so I don't have to watch my people die. There's truly nothing new under the sun. So the king responds to, if you really love me. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring can be revoked. I I love picturing what's going on in this scene, because she's begging him what to do, and she starts out, he starts out really with, je vous aime, je vous adore, I like you, I love you, what more do you want? He starts out with saying, I killed Haman, I gave you all this stuff, what more could you possibly want? And I think he looks at her and sees the look on her face, he may be satisfied that things are over. She's not satisfied, and women, we can, we can let our men know, and this isn't good enough for me, you know, you open up your Valentine gift today, I mean, he'll know immediately, he'll know immediately if, it, if it's good enough, and, and so just because he's satisfied, his anger is satisfied, it's enough for him, but she is not, and, and so then he goes, okay, well then, have your way, write a law, do whatever you want, write a law, I'll give you the signet ring, seal it, send it off. And he agrees, then, to have this law written to counteract Haman's law. Isn't it interesting? Does he seem to have any more interest and input in this law than he's had the entire... No. He's still disinterested. Will this man ever learn? No. You know, it's, it, I, I'm reminded of the definition of insanity as doing the same thing the same way and expecting different results. I think we have ample evidence in, in Esther and in history that this man was clinically, literally, certifiably insane, I hope his his, uh, progeny don't come after me for having said that, but uh, absolutely insane. But he's not interested, and he just write it, take the ring, do whatever you want. Uh, And so the new edict is written. And the new edict, both in how it's written and what it says, is a mirror image. And you need to remember that. That's important. A mirror image of Haman's law. It says, at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, the governors and nobles of the 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them out by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Um, Actually, I'm going to go back. I'm going to stop there for just a second. So how how it was written and the the situation surrounding how it was sent out is a mirror image of what happened with Haman's law. The secretaries are summoned just as they were for Haman. It is sent to the satraps, the governors, and the nobles just as it had been for Haman. It is written in every language and sent to every people group. But there is one small difference here. In this law, they include the Jews. And Haman's law, whether it did or it didn't, it didn't say that it included the Jews. In this law, they included the Jews. But it is a, it is a mirror image of what happened with Haman's law. And not only did, was there a mirror image in how it was written and how it was sent, the law itself was a mirror image of Haman's law. It says, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all of the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command. The king's command. And the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. So here we have this law that is also a mirror image of Haman's law. The Jews were allowed to defend themselves as opposed to being the, the initiators of the attack. However, the language is exactly the same, intentionally exactly the same. It tells them that in defending themselves, the Jews are given the right to destroy, kill, and annihilate anyone who attacks them anywhere in the empire on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. And just like the original law, they are given the right to take plunder from their enemies. Now, the NIV kind of obscures the part about women and children. I think there are a number of reasons for this. But the NIV makes it sound like they are given permission to kill anyone who attacks them or their women and children. When, in fact, the most natural reading of the Hebrew gives the Jews the right to kill any of their enemies, men, women, And children, which I know is troubling uh, to read. Uh, But that is what the majority of scholars believe, uh, it says, and it is the most natural reading of the Hebrew. And when you add to that the fact that um, the law was intentionally intended to mirror Haman's law. And that's what Haman's law said: was you get to kill all the Jews, man, woman, and child, then A mirror image would allow that as well. Um, And uh, we'll talk about it in a little bit, because I know it's troubling. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But for now, let me just say that just because the law um, gave them permission to kill women and children, it doesn't mean they did kill women and children. In fact, it gave them permission to take plunder, and they, in fact, did not take plunder. So what is happening with this law is, in effect, a law written by Mordecai and sealed with the signet ring of the king legalized civil war in the Persian Empire for a day. That is, that is hard to fathom, isn't it, that, uh, that, that they would codify civil war, but they have. Um, so... Then the the law is is sent out, and and we see in verses 15 through 17 more reversal. Uh, And and, and, and in particular, we see the reaction to the first law as opposed to the reaction to the second law. And it says, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white. What was he wearing after the first law? Sackcloth and ashes. So, So he who after the first law was clothed in sackcloth and ashes, is now clothed in in royal garments and a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And then what was the reaction to the people in Susa after the first law? It says they were confused. They were bewildered. And here it says, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. So the city of Susa that at the first law was bewildered, they were confused, what is going on, is now celebrating. And remember for the Jews the Jews reacted to the law with fasting and weeping and mourning and here now is how they are reacting for the Jews it was time it was a time of happiness and joy gladness and honor in every province and in every city wherever the edict of the king went there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them So these people who had been in mourning are now celebrating, so this has been a reversal for everyone. And then tagged on at the end, it tells us of these conversions of some of the Jews. It's interesting that the Hebrew verb, that they became Jews, is used nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's the only place that it's found in the Old Testament. Um, and it does not say that they became Jews because they feared God and all he had done in destroying Haman it has nothing to do with that. They feared, well, frankly, they feared Mordecai. He was the second most powerful man in the nation, in the empire now. And he wrote the edict. And so they feared the Jews. So these were likely not very sincere conversions. They were just afraid. I saw a political cartoon when I was in college once, of a crusader on a horse, and he's got his lance up against a guy's neck who's on the ground, and the guy goes, tell me more about this Christianity of yours. I'm very interested. <laughs> That's the kind of conversion I think uh, they're talking about here. So the day finally arrives for um, the, the Civil War. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes, to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them, because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews, because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed all ten of those names, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. So the, the whole story is played out, and um, the day arrives, but the, but the outcome is already settled. Before the author even tells us what happens, he tells us what the outcome is. The tables had turned, and the Jews had the upper hand, so we know how it's going to turn out the Jews, again, experience a reversal of fortune. Instead of being destroyed, they destroy their enemies. And they received help. They received help from the leaders of each province, of each each district. And of course they would. Because who is their boss? Mordecai is their boss. And so out of fear of what might happen to them if they attack the Jews, they actually help the Jews. So uh, they weren't dummies. The sons of Haman are killed. And this ensures that there will be no vengeance in their father's name, and it, it ensures that, that the evil plot of Haman will not um, be, be carried on, his legacy will not be carried on. And for the first time, we are told that although the law allowed them to take plunder, the Jews did not take plunder from their enemies. We'll talk about why in just a little bit here. So Esther goes before the queen, or king, excuse me, one more time here. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa, uh, in, the, in the citadel of Susa, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your, now what do you want? This is basically what he's saying. What are you here by now again for? Now what do you want? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, answer, answer, Esther answered, give the Jews and Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews and Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay hands on their plunder. So, so the queen goes before the king to receive a report and to make a request. The report is that 500 men had been killed in Susa. Now, only the men are reported, so it's entirely possible that only the men were killed. And that's why I say that, that just as plunder was not taken, it is entirely possible that, that women and children were not also killed. But do you notice here how differently Esther approaches the king? There's no more groveling, there's no more pleading, there's no more, if I have found favor in your sight, if you think I'm beautiful, there's none of that. She just flat out says what she wants. She gets straight to the point and says, uh, honey, I want a second day of killing. Uh, that's, that's my request. And he grants it. Again, only in Susa, by the way, did she ask for the second day. Why? Why did she make this request? Um, Well, this request has been called everything by scholars from, it's been called everything from literally overkill to conduct unbecoming a woman. Is she just being vindictive now? Does she have a true pragmatic reason for needing a second day? We, We really can't know. What we do know is that the Bible never shies away from showing us both people's virtues and their vices. We are often shown the darker side of people that we would call biblical heroes. Everyone from, from Noah to Abraham to Jacob to Samson. Samson was awful. Can I just say that? When I taught judges, I was like, why do we tell this story to our children? He was awful. But to to um, David, a man after God's own heart, looked at Bathsheba and went, mm-hmm. So, so the, the, the Bible never shies away from saying, look, you are tragically flawed human beings. And it is entirely possible that the author wants to make the point that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and even Esther was corrupted by the power she held in her hands, especially when he includes the way she approached the king. But we can't know for sure. Um what the reason was. Here's what we do know. We know part of the reason why it's included here is to explain why Purim, which is the Jewish feast that is celebrated to this day, celebrating these events of Esther, it's going to be celebrated in March, I think, um, why it was celebrated at this time on the 14th in some places and on the 15th in others. So that's what verses 16 through uh, 19 talk about. Um, I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about a really difficult issue, which is the issue of the violence of the Old Testament and the violence in Esther, um, retributive violence, and and that God would command killing in the Old Testament. And, And it's not just here in Esther, it's all over the Old Testament. In fact, God, through Samuel, told Saul, To kill the Amalekites, wipe them off the face of the earth. He promised it. He promised to Moses, I am going to wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. And he could have done that by pestilence, and he could have done it by an earthquake, but he chose to say, Saul, it's your job. Kill them all. And I don't think I even had you read this part in 1 Samuel the first time you read it, because I was a little worried about your reaction. He says, every man, every woman, every child, every infant, every animal, kill them all. And and especially in our modern sensibilities, we go, what the heck? What's God doing? Who is this God that is commanding these things? By the way, Saul did not obey. He let King Agag live. And King Agag lived long enough, before Samuel killed him, to to conceive, to, to, uh, to have sex with his wife and conceive a child whose progeny eventually, whose descendant eventually was Haman. So in some sense, Saul's disobedience led to this violence we're reading about in Esther. You know, when we come across these troubling passages in both the Old and New Testament, but particularly this kind of thing in the Old Testament, issues such as this, we are sometimes tempted to apologize for God. Yeah, you know, he was really angry that day. He just had a bad day. And we want to apologize for God. But here's the deal. God doesn't need us to apologize for him. He is God, and we are not. And he knows what he is doing. He knows exactly what he is doing. He is in control. And he also knows that as God, he has a right to do all of the things he does, and they are all within the confines of his perfect character. But how is it then that this God of the Old Testament commands destruction of human beings. And the same God in the New Testament tells us, love your enemies. How can those two things be reconciled? How can it make sense? And the the answer is this. It only makes sense, in fact, the entire Old Testament only makes sense when we interpret it through the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ, if we take something out of the Old Testament and study it in its own little world out of its context, out of the context not just of the Old Testament, but of the, of the entire redemptive history of the Bible, then we can't understand it. It doesn't make sense. And the only way for it to make sense is for us to interpret it through the cross of Christ. What is happening here in these verses in Esther and in other places in the Old Testament with Saul and Agag and all that is what is called Holy War. Now, I really struggled with whether to even use that term because it makes us squeamish. It makes us think of turbans and terrorists and car bombs. Uh, but that is not the use of Holy War, and I'll t- discuss that in a minute. Um, but, but in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is filled with this concept of holy war, of Israel waging actual war against its enemies, the enemies of Israel. What is Haman called over and over again? The enemy of the Jews. And from the time the Israelites left Egypt, Israel's enemies were trying to destroy them. Physically, through war, and the Amalekites were the first, but also by enticing them into their sinful practices and thereby destroying their faith and their relationship with God. God had to protect the Israelites for his own redemptive purposes because if there was no people of God, there could be no Messiah. There could be no redemption without God's people, without a line for Messiah to come through. And we also have to understand, I believe, something that is overlooked is the nature of the enemies of Israel. These people were not Warden June Cleaver who just happened to slip up on something, okay? These people were enormously evil, and, and not only did they worship false gods, but they practiced horrendous evil in the name of those gods. Child sacrifice was common. Ritual prostitution, that was part of their worship. There were prostitutes all over their temples. That's what the Asherah poles were all about, which is why God kept saying, cut down every one of those poles. Pole dancing is nothing new, ladies. It's been going on For millennia. And these folks invented it. And God hates it. And and God knew that if his people allowed their enemies to live among them, their enemies would pull them into their same sinful practices. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. That's why they're in exile in the first place. Because they did what their enemies did. They fell into those sinful practices. They didn't cut down the doggone Asherah poles. And they ended up being defeated by their enemies and being taken into exile. So Israel's enemies were people that were so evil that destruction was the only remedy. And remember, their enemies, Israel's enemies, were bent on destroying them. Throughout history, God has always preserved a remnant. And God needed to preserve a remnant of his people in order to preserve the line of Messiah. this is this, What we're seeing in Esther is all about redemptive history. Esther's holy war, what we're seeing in Esther 9, is an example of holy war. In fact, the fact that Haman is, is repeatedly called the enemy of the Jews is a hint that this is an example of holy war. The fact that the second edict was a mirror image of the first edict is proof that both the author and the people, the Jews, viewed this as a holy war. In fact, the fact that they did not take plunder is proof that this was holy war because God commanded that plunder not be taken when Israel defeated somebody. In fact, ask Achan. It did not turn well for him when he decided he would keep plunder. You can, you can read about that uh, in Exodus, I think. Um, so, it, no, 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 it's after Exodus. It's after um, Jericho, after Jericho. Everything that was taken was supposed to be destroyed as a, a sacrifice to God. So the Jews did not take plunder. Why? Because they were in an act of holy war, a war on their enemies and the enemies of God. But the crux of holy war, what is at the center of holy war, as in everything, was not about Israel or its enemies. Ultimately, it's all about God. And here's what Karen Job says is the essence or the crux of holy war. The essence of holy war in the Old Testament is not about two nations in warfare, one of which happens to be Israel. Holy war is about God warring against sin and evil on this earth. His people were to live in the safety of holiness and righteousness their existence as God's redeemed people was threatened from the beginning by the rest of the world. Therefore, the success of God's plan of redemption required the protection of his people in his war against evil, which required that those people take both offensive and defensive measures to assure their existence. This, in turn, meant that holy war became necessary whenever their existence was threatened until, in the fullness of time, Jesus, the ultimate divine warrior and king of Israel, was born from and for God's people. Holy war in the Old Testament is about God's war against sin and evil. And it's interesting that that word crux comes from the word cross. And and it was on the cross that Jesus fought the final battle with sin and evil. And it is only in this redemptive context that holy war and, in fact, the entire Old Testament makes sense. Because, you see, ladies, the cross of Christ is the end of holy war, at least as it is known in the Old Testament. Holy war, as it was known in the Old Testament, has ceased, for Christians, has ceased because Jesus fought the last episode of holy war on the cross. He will return one day to finally banish sin and evil forever, but the victory has already been won. The tables have turned. We already know how it's going to turn out. And ladies, really, if you read Revelation, it's not going to last long. He's going to come down on a horse, he's going to go, "Ah," and they're all going to fall over dead. If if you blink, you're going to miss it. But God's vengeance towards sin and evil, his wrath towards sin and evil, including our own, was poured out on Christ on the cross, and therefore it was satisfied. God's wrath against sin was satisfied. And in fact, Karen Jobes says that it is is no accident that the nations that still practice holy war on this earth are nations that reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because for Christians, justice and mercy, as the song says, have met on the cross. And God's wrath and vengeance towards sin and evil have been satisfied. But there is a continuing battle. And Ephesians 6 talks about that continuing battle. And Ephesians 6 It says, finally, Paul writes, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle is no longer against God's enemies on earth. It is against God's enemies real and unseen evil forces that are in the world, real and unseen in the world. But ladies, as it was in Esther, the battle is already won. Jesus fought that battle and won it on the cross and through the empty tomb. But the battle is not against human beings. It's against Satan and his minions. And the, and the, the weapons that we use come from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. If you read all of um, Ephesians 6, you'll see that our weapons are righteousness and and faith and the gospel of peace, among other things, which come to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. The battle, in this case, is for the human heart. It's our own personal struggle against sin, our own battle against sin in our, our, our own lives, but it's also the battle for the hearts and minds of people out there that don't know Jesus. The last thing Jesus said in Matthew 28 is, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to do what I have commanded you, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. And so the battle is for the hearts and minds of others, the great commission. Um, and, And this victory as well is only possible because... Jesus has fought the final holy war on the cross, and he's risen from the dead, and he's ascended to heaven, and we are therefore empowered by the Holy Spirit in this battle. A number of years ago, my now 15-year-old nephew was a cubby at a church that my, my sister called um, Commando Cubbies, and it's not around here uh, it, where she lives. And she called the Commando Cubbies because they would not pass a three-, four-, or five-year-old if he did not or she did not say the verse word perfect. They had to get every word perfect or, eh, no, you don't pass. I know, it's a problem. That's why my sister called it commando cubbies. But there was a verse, the first verse they were supposed to memorize was there is none righteous, no, not one. And little three-year-old Timmy got the concept completely because he would say, there is none righteous, no, no, none. (laughs) And he got it, but they wouldn't pass him. You know what, Timmy was right There is no one righteous. The Amalekites were evil and did evil in the sight of the Lord. I do too. As my my sister in Christ, as my friend Chris says, we are all dirty, rotten sinners deserving hell. And that's, that's part of what makes this so wonderful. It's what makes God's grace so amazing because he lavishes it on us. Who are sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get it together. I've I've quoted before Romans 3.23, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all dirty, rotten sinners deserving hell. And Romans 6.23, that says, The wages of sin is death. We deserve death for our sin, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We all deserve death. But God, in his grace, has given us life. We cannot save ourselves, but Jesus, in his love for us, has hung on a cross so we can be saved. That is God's irrevocable decree, that we deserve death for our sin. And God could have given us that death. He would have been perfectly justified in wiping out all of us on this earth. And in, but instead, he sent a counteracting decree in the form of his son. Karen Job says, just as Xerxes, king of Persia, could not simply rescind the first decree of death, God, king of the universe, cannot simply rescind the decree of death pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. Instead, he issues a counter decree of life the gospel of Jesus Christ, because God did not simply rescind the curse of death on humanity. His counter-decree of redemption necessarily resulted in the incarnation of his son and in that son's death on a cross. And this counter-decree that God sent in the form of his son was initiated long ago when God chose for himself a people through whom he would achieve his purpose of redemption. God's people were no more holy than the, than the Amalekites, than the people around him them, and the truth is, neither are we. But God, in his mercy, set in motion a plan of redemption. When I first started thinking about this lecture, I thought, great, death, destruction, plunder on Valentine's Day. How is that appropriate? But I now realize that it, was, it is extraordinarily appropriate because all of it, everything in the Old Testament, even the stuff that makes us squeamish, like, the, like Esther 8 and 9, points forward to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. Happy Valentine's Day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that in your mercy, in your amazing grace, you have given us life instead of death because you love us that much. Father, may we reflect that love to the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies. Have a good day.